From the Conference Center at Temple Square in Salt Lake City, this is the Sunday afternoon session of the 188th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with speakers selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music for this session is provided by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. This broadcast is furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. President Dallin H. Oaks, first counselor in the first presidency of the church, will conduct this session. Brothers and sisters, we welcome you to the concluding session of the 188th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President Russell M. Nelson, who presides at this conference, has asked me to conduct this session. We extend our greetings to members of the Church and friends everywhere who are participating in these proceedings by radio, television, the internet, or satellite transmission. The music for this session will be provided by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir under the direction of Mac Wilberg and Ryan Murphy with Richard Elliott and Brian Mathias at the organ. The choir will open this meeting by singing Brightly Beams Our Father's Mercy. The invocation will then be offered by Elder Weatherford T. Clayton of the Seventy, after which the choir will sing Dear to the Heart of the Shepherd.
Our dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be gathered in this beautiful building next to the mountain of the Lord's house to hear thy word from thy living apostles and prophets. We thank thee for the blessing of a living prophet who has taught us how to seek and receive revelation this very day. We gather again and ask thy spirit to be upon us that we can hear and act upon the things that will be taught us. We humbly ask thee to bless those who will address us, that they will speak by the Spirit, and we will hear by the power of thy Spirit, that we can be edified together and understand what we should do. There are many battered seamen and sea women who await thy tender care. And, oh, that we might go forth as directed by these thy living apostles and prophets who lead us to thy Son. May thy Spirit bless us this day as we hear these words. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Oh. 
We will now be pleased to hear from Elders Garrett W. Gong and Ulysses Suarez, who were sustained yesterday morning as new members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. We will then hear briefly from President Russell M. Nelson, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and Sister Jean B. Bingham, Relief Society General President, will then address us. Elder Gong. Dear brothers and sisters, when our sons were very young, I told them bedtime stories about beagle puppies and hummed bedtime hymns, including Christ the Lord is Risen Today. Sometimes I playfully changed the words. Now it's time to go to sleep. Hallelujah. Usually our sons fell asleep quickly, or at least they knew if I thought they were asleep, I would stop singing. (laughs) Words, at least my words, cannot express the overwhelming feelings since President Russell M. Nelson lovingly took my hands in his, with dear Susan at my side, and extended this sacred call from the Lord that took my breath away and has left me weeping many times these past days. This Easter Sabbath, I joyfully sing Alleluia, the song of our risen Savior's redeeming love, celebrates the harmony of covenants that connect us to God and to each other, and the Atonement of Jesus Christ that helps us put off the natural man and woman and yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. Together. Our covenants and our Savior's atonement enable and ennoble. Together, they help us hold on and let go. Together, they sweeten, preserve, sanctify, redeem. Said the Prophet Joseph Smith, quote, It may seem to some to be a very bold doctrine that we speak of, a power which records or binds on earth and binds in heaven. Nevertheless, in all ages of the world, Whenever the Lord is given a dispensation of the priesthood to any man by actual revelation or any set of men, this power has always been given. And so it is today. Sacred covenants and ordinances not available anywhere else are received in 159 holy houses of the Lord in 43 countries. Promised blessings come through restored priesthood keys, doctrine, and authority, reflecting our faith, obedience, and the promises of His Holy Spirit to us and our generations in time and eternity. Dear brothers and sisters in every nation, kindred, and tongue across our worldwide Church, thank you for your living faith, hope, and charity in every footstep. Thank you for becoming a gathering fullness of restored gospel testimony and experience. Dear brothers and sisters, we belong to each other. We can be knit together in unity and in love in all things and in all places, as the Lord Jesus Christ invites to each of us, wherever we are, whatever our circumstance. Please come and see.
This day I humbly pledge all the energies and faculties of my soul, whatever they may be or whatever they may become, my Savior, to my dear Susan and our family, to my brethren, and to each of you, my beloved brothers and sisters. Everything worthy and eternal is centered in the living reality of God, our loving, eternal Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, and His Atonement, witnessed by the Holy Ghost. This is Easter Sunday. I reverently witness and solemnly testify of the living Christ, He who died, was buried, and rose again the third day, and ascended into heaven. He is Alpha and Omega, with us in the beginning. He is with us to the end. I testify of Latter-day Prophets, from the Prophet Joseph Smith to our dear President Russell M. Nelson, whom we joyfully sustain. As our primary children sing, Follow the Prophet. He knows the way. And as prophesied in the Holy Scriptures, including in the Book of Mormon, I witness the Lord's kingdom is once again on the earth, preparatory to the second coming of the Messiah. In the holy and sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, whatever you may be, I would like to express my sincere and deep thanks for your sustaining vote yesterday. Though I feel ineloquent and slow of speech like Moses, I console myself in the Lord's words to him, Who hath made man's mouth, or who maketh the dumb, or deaf, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what I shall say. I take solace also in the love and support of my beloved wife. She has been an example of goodness, love, and total devotion to the Lord and for me and my family. I love her with every ounce of my heart, and I am grateful for the positive influence she has had on us. Brothers and sisters, I want to testify to you today that President Russell M. Nelson is the prophet of God on earth. I never seen anyone more kind and loving than he is. Though I felt so inadequate for this sacred call, his words and the tender look in his eyes as he extended this responsibility made me feel embraced by the Savior's love. Thank you, President, President Nelson. I sustain you and I love you. Isn't it a blessing to have prophets, seers, and revelators on earth in these days in which we live who seek to know the will of the Lord and follow it? It is comforting to know that we are not alone in the world despite the challenges we face in life. Having prophets is a sign of God's love for His children. They make known the promises and the true nature of God and of Jesus Christ to their people. I've learned that through my own personal experiences. Eighteen years ago, my wife and I received a phone call from President James E. Faust, then second counselor in the First Presidency. He called us to serve as mission president and companion in Portugal. He told us that we had only six weeks before we started the mission. Although we felt unprepared and inadequate, 
we accept the call. Our most important concern at the time was to obtain the visas required to serve in that country because, according to past experience, we knew that process took six to eight months to complete. President Faust then asked if we had faith that the Lord would perform a miracle and that we would be able to solve the visa problem faster. Our answer was a big yes, and we started making the arrangements immediately. We prepared the documents required for the visas, took our young family with our three kids, and went to the consulate as fast as we could. A very nice lady met with us there. In reviewing our papers and getting acquainted with what we were going to do in Portugal, she turned to us and asked, Are you really going to help the people of my country? We firmly answered yes and explained that we would represent Jesus Christ and testify of Him and His divine mission in the world. We returned there four weeks later, received our visas, and landed in the mission field within the six weeks, as the prophet of the Lord has asked us to do. Brothers and sisters, I testify from the bottom of my heart that the prophets speak by the power of the Holy Spirit. They testify of Christ and His divine mission on earth. They represent the mind and heart of the Lord and are called to represent Him and teach us what we must do to return to live in the presence of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. We are blessed as we exercise our faith and follow their teachings. By following them, our lives are happier and less complicated, our difficulties and problems are easier to bear, and we create a spiritual armor around us that will protect us from the attack of the enemy in our day. On this Easter day, I solemnly testify that Jesus Christ is risen, He lives, and He directs this Church on earth through His prophets, seers, and revelators. I testify that He is the Savior and the Redeemer of the world, and that through Him we can be saved and exalted in the presence of our dear God. I love Him. I adore Him. I want to follow Him and do His will and become more like Him. I humbly say these things in the sacred name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Elder Gong and Elder Suarez, for your heartfelt expressions of faith. We are so very grateful for you and your dear companions. Now, dear brothers and sisters, we constantly seek direction from the Lord on how we can help our members keep the commandments of God, especially those two great commandments, to love God and our neighbors. For months, we have been seeking a better way to minister to the spiritual and temporal needs of our people in the Savior's way. We have made the decision to retire home teaching and visiting teaching, as we have known them. Instead, we will implement a newer, holier approach to caring and ministering to others. We will refer to these efforts simply as ministering. Effective ministering efforts are enabled by the innate gifts of the sisters. 
and by the incomparable power of the priesthood. We all need such protection from the cunning wiles of the adversary. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and Sister Jean B. Bingham, General President of the Relief Society, will explain how assigned brethren of the priesthood and assigned sisters of the Relief Society and young women will now function in serving and watching over members of the Church throughout the world. The First Presidency and the Twelve are united in endorsing their messages. Gratefully and prayerfully, we open this new chapter in the history of the Church. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. To paraphrase Ralph Waldo Emerson, the most memorable moments in life are those in which we feel the rush of revelation. President Nelson, I don't know how many more rushes we can handle this weekend. (laughs) Some of us have weak hearts. (laughs) But as I think about it, you can take care of that too. Uh, (laughs) What a prophet. In the spirit of President Nelson's marvelous declarations and testimonies last night and this morning, I bear my own witness that these adjustments are examples of the revelation that has guided this Church from its beginning. They are yet more evidence that the Lord is hastening His work in its time. For all who are eager to learn the details of these matters, please know that immediately upon the conclusion of this session of conference, a sequence will begin that includes, not necessarily in this order, sending a letter from the First Presidency to every member of the Church for whom we have an email address, a seven-page document of questions and answers will be attached for all priesthood and auxiliary leaders. Lastly. Those materials are being posted immediately on ministering.lds.org. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. (laughs) Now to the wonderful assignment President Nelson has given to me and to Sister Bingham. Brothers and sisters, as the work of quorums and auxiliaries matures institutionally, It follows that we should mature personally as well, individually rising above any mechanical function-without-feeling routine to the heartfelt discipleship articulated by the Savior at the conclusion of his earthly ministry. As he prepared to leave his still innocent and somewhat confused little band of followers, He did not list a dozen administrative steps they had to take or hand them a fistful of reports to be filled out in triplicate. No, he summarized their task 
in one fundamental commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Now, in an effort to move us closer to that gospel ideal, this newly announced priesthood and Relief Society ministering concept will include, among other things, some of the following elements, many of which the Relief Society has already put in place with wonderful success. We will no longer use home teaching and visiting teaching language. That is partly because much of our ministering effort will be in settings other than the home, and partly because our contact won't be defined by teaching a prepared lesson, though a lesson certainly may be shared if there is need for such. The primary purpose in this ministering idea will be, as was said of the people in Alma's day, to watch over the people and nourish them with things pertaining to righteousness. We will continue to visit homes as possible, but local circumstances such as large numbers, long distances, personal safety, other challenging conditions, this may preclude a visit to every home every month. As the First Presidency counseled years ago, do the best you can. In addition to whatever schedule you establish for actual visits, that calendar can be supplemented with telephone calls, written notes, texts, emails, video chats, conversations at church meetings, shared service projects, social activities, a host of possibilities in the world of social media. However, I should stress that this expansive new view does not include the sorry statement I recently saw on an automobile bumper sticker. It read, If I honk, you've been home taught. Please, please, brethren. The sisters would never be guilty of that. I, sp I speak to the brethren of the Church. With these adjustments, we want more care and concern, not less. With this newer, more gospel-based concept of ministering, I feel you starting to panic about what counts on the report. Well, relax, because there isn't any report. At least not the 31st of the month I made it through the door by the skin of my teeth report. Here, too, we are trying to mature. The only report that will be made is the number of interviews leaders had with the ministering companionships in the ward that quarter. Simple as that sounds, my friends, those interviews are absolutely crucial. Without that information, the bishop will have no way to receive the information he needs regarding the spiritual and temporal conditions of his people. Remember, ministering brethren represent the bishopric and elders' quorum presidency. They do not replace them. The keys of a bishop 
and a quorum president go far beyond this ministering concept. Because this report is different from anything you've submitted in the past, let me stress that we at the church headquarters don't need to know how or where or when you make contact with your people. We just need to know and care very much that you do make it and that you bless them in every way that you can. Brothers and sisters, we have a heaven-sent opportunity as an entire church to demonstrate pure religion undefiled before God, to bear one another's burdens that they may be light, and to comfort those that stand in need of comfort, to minister to the widows and the fatherless, the married and the single, the strong and the distraught, the downtrodden and the robust, the happy and the sad. In short, all of us, every one of us, because we all need to feel the warm hand of friendship and hear the firm declaration of faith. However, I warn you, a new name, new flexibility, fewer reports will not make one ounce of difference in our service unless we see this as an invitation to care for one another in a bold, new, holier way, as President Nelson has just said. As we lift our spiritual eyes toward living the law of love more universally, we pay tribute to the generations who have served that way for years. Let me note a recent example of such devotion in hopes that legions more will grasp the Lord's commandment to be with and strengthen our brothers and sisters. Last January 14th, a Sunday, just a little after 5 p.m., my young friends Brett and Kristen Hamlin were chatting at their home in Tempe, Arizona, after Brett's day serving in the bishopric and Kristen's busy day caring for five children. Suddenly, Kristen, a seemingly successful survivor of breast cancer the previous year, fell unresponsive. A call to 911 brought an emergency team trying desperately to revive her. As Brett prayed and pleaded, he quickly placed just two other telephone calls, one to his mother requesting her help with the children the other to Edwin Potter, his home teacher. The latter conversation in its entirety went as follows. Edwin, noting caller ID, said, Hey, Brett, what's up? Brett's near-shouted response was, I need you here now. In fewer minutes than Brett could count, his priesthood colleague was standing at his side, helping with the children and then driving Brother Hamlin to the hospital behind the ambulance carrying his wife. There, less than 40 minutes after she had first closed her eyes, the physicians pronounced Kristen dead. As Brett sobbed, Edwin simply held him in his arms and cried with him for a long, long time.
Then, leaving Brett to grieve with other family members who'd gathered, Edwin drove to the bishop's home to tell him what had just transpired. A marvelous bishop started immediately for the hospital while Edwin drove on to the Hamlin household. There, he and his wife Charlotte, who had also come running, played with the five now motherless Hamlin children, ages 12 down to 3. They fed them an evening meal, held an impromptu musical recital, and helped them get ready for bed. Brett told me later, The amazing part of this story isn't that Edwin came when I called. In an emergency, there are always people willing to help. No, the amazing part of the story is that he's the one I thought of. There were other people around. Kristen has a brother and a sister less than three miles away. We have a great bishop, the greatest. But the relationship between Edwin and me is such that I felt instinctively to call him when I needed help. The Church provides us, Rhett said, a structured way to live the Second Commandment better, to love, serve, and develop relationships with our brothers and sisters that help us move closer to God. Close quote. Edwin said about the experience, Elder Holland, the irony in all of this is that Brett has been our family's home teacher for longer than I've been theirs. Over that time, he has visited us more as a friend than by any assignment. He's been a great example, the epitome of what an active and involved priesthood bearer should be. My wife, our boys, we don't see him as one obligated to bring us a message at the end of the month. We think of him as a friend who just lives down the street and around the corner who would do anything in this world to bless us. I am so grateful I could repay, repay just a little bit of the debt I owe him. Brothers and sisters, I join with you in saluting every block teacher and ward teacher and home teacher and visiting teacher who has loved and served so faithfully throughout our history. Our prayer today is that every man and woman and our older young men and young women will leave this general conference more deeply committed to heartfelt care for one another motivated only by the pure love of Christ to do so. In spite of what we all feel are our limitations and our inadequacies, and we all have challenges, nevertheless, may we labor side by side with the Lord of the vineyard, giving the God and Father of us all a helping hand with his staggering task of answering prayers, providing comfort, drying tears, and strengthening feeble knees. If we'll do that, 
we will be more like the true disciples of Christ we are meant to be. On this Easter Sunday, may we love one another as he has loved us. I pray in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What a wonderful blessing to live in a time of continual revelation from God. As we look forward to and embrace the restitution of all things which has and will come through the prophesied events of our time, we are being prepared for the Savior's second coming. And what better way to prepare to meet Him than to strive to become like Him through lovingly ministering to one another. As Jesus Christ taught his followers at the beginning of this dispensation, If thou lovest me, thou shalt serve me. Our service to others is a demonstration of discipleship and our gratitude and love for God and his Son, Jesus Christ. Sometimes we think we have to do something grand and heroic to count as serving our neighbors, yet simple acts of service can have profound effects on others as well as on ourselves. What did the Savior do? Through his supernal gifts of the Atonement and Resurrection, which we celebrate on this beautiful Easter Sunday, none other has had so profound an influence on all who have lived and who will yet live upon the earth. But he also smiled at, talked with, walked with, listened to, made time for, encouraged, taught, fed, and forgave. He served family and friends, neighbors and strangers alike. And he invited acquaintances and loved ones to enjoy the rich blessings of his gospel. Those simple acts of service and love provide a template for our ministering today. As you have the privilege to represent the Savior in your ministering efforts, ask yourself, How can I share the light of the gospel with this individual or family? What is the Spirit inspiring me to do? Ministering can be done in a great variety of individualized ways, so what does it look like? Ministering looks like Elders Quorum and Relief Society Presidencies prayerfully counseling about assignments. Rather than leaders just handing out slips of paper, it looks like counseling about the individuals and families in person as assignments are given to ministering brothers and sisters. It looks like going for a walk, getting together for a game night, offering service, or even serving together. It looks like visiting in person, or talking on the phone, or chatting online, or texting. It looks like delivering a birthday card and cheering at a soccer game. It looks like sharing a scripture or quote from a conference talk that would be meaningful to that individual. It looks like discussing a gospel question and sharing testimony to bring clarity and peace. It looks like becoming part of someone's life and caring about him or her. It also looks like a ministering interview in which needs and strengths are discussed sensitively and appropriately. It looks like the ward council organizing to respond to a larger need. This kind of ministering strengthened one sister who moved far away from home when her husband started graduate school. With no working phone and a small baby to care for, she felt disoriented in the new location, totally lost and alone. Without advance notice, A Relief Society sister came to the door, bringing a little pair of shoes for the baby, put the two of them into her car, and took them to find the grocery store. 
The Grateful Sister reported, She was my lifeline. True ministering is illustrated by an older sister in Africa who was assigned to seek out a sister who had not attended church meetings for a long time. When she went to the sister's home, she found that the woman had been beaten and robbed, had very little to eat, and possessed no clothes that she felt were appropriate for Sunday church meetings. The woman assigned to minister to her brought a listening ear, produce from her garden, scriptures to read, and friendship. The missing sister soon came back to church and now holds a calling because she knows she is loved and valued. Combining such Relief Society efforts with the now restructured Elders Quorum will bring a unity that can yield astonishing results. Ministering becomes one coordinated effort to fulfill the priesthood duty to visit the house of each member and to watch over the Church always and be with and strengthen them as well as to achieve the Relief Society purpose to help one another prepare for the blessings of eternal life. Working together under the direction of the bishop, Elders Quorum and Relief Society presidencies can be inspired as they seek the best ways to watch over and care for each individual and family. Let me give you an example. A mother was diagnosed with cancer. Soon she began treatment. And immediately, the Relief Society sisters went to work, planning how to best help with meals, transportation to medical appointments, and other support. They visited her regularly, providing cheerful companionship. At the same time, the Melchizedek Priesthood Quorum sprang into action. They provided labor in adding a remodeled bedroom and bathroom to make it easier to care for the sick sister. The young men lent their hands and backs to participate in that significant effort. And the young women got involved. They cheerfully arranged to faithfully walk the dog each day. As time passed, the ward continued their service, adding and adapting where necessary. It was clearly a labor of love, each member giving of him or herself, unitedly showing caring in individual ways that blessed not only the suffering sister, but each member of her family. Well, after a valiant effort, the sister finally succumbed to the cancer and was laid to rest. Did the ward breathe a sigh of relief and consider the job well done and well over? No. The young women continued to walk the dog daily. The priesthood quorums continued to minister to the father and his family. And the Relief Society sisters continued to reach out in love to ascertain strengths and needs. Brothers and sisters, this is ministering. This is loving as the Savior does. Another blessing of these inspired announcements is the opportunity for young women ages 14 to 18 to participate in ministering as companions to Relief Society sisters, just as young men their age serve as ministering companions to Melchizedek Priesthood Brethren. Youth can share their unique gifts and grow spiritually as they serve alongside adults in the work of salvation. Involving youth in ministering assignments can also increase the reach of Relief Society and Elders Quorum's Caring for Others by increasing the number of members who participate. As I think about the stellar young women I have known, I get excited for those Relief Society sisters who will have the privilege of being blessed by a young woman's enthusiasm, talents, and spiritual sensitivity as they serve side by side or are ministered to by them. And I am equally delighted by the chance young women will have to be mentored and taught and strengthened by their sisters in Relief Society. 
This opportunity to participate in building the kingdom of God will be a tremendous benefit to young women, helping them better prepare to fulfill their roles as leaders in the Church and the community and as contributing partners in their families. As Sister Bonnie L. Oscarson shared yesterday, young women want to be of service. They need to know they are valued and essential in the work of salvation. In fact, young women are already ministering to others without assignment or fanfare. A family I know moved hundreds of miles to a new location where they knew no one. Within the first week, a 14-year-old girl from their new ward showed up on their doorstep with a plate of cookies, welcoming them to the area. Her mother stood smiling behind her as a willing chauffeur, supporting her daughter's desire to minister. Another mother was concerned one day that her 16-year-old daughter was not home at the usual hour. When the girl finally arrived, her mother quizzed her with some frustration about where she had been. The 16-year-old almost sheepishly replied that she had taken a flower to a widow who lived nearby. She had noticed the older sister looking lonely and felt prompted to visit her. With her mother's complete approval, the young woman continued to visit the elderly woman. They became good friends, and their sweet association continued for years. Each of these young women, and many more like them, noticed someone's need and worked to meet it. Young women have a natural desire to care and share that could be well-directed through ministering in partnership with an adult sister. No matter our age, when we consider how to minister most effectively, we ask, What does she or he need? Coupling that question with a sincere desire to serve, we are then led by the Spirit to do what would lift and strengthen the individual. I have heard countless stories of brothers and sisters who are blessed by a simple gesture of inclusion and welcome at church, a thoughtful email or text message, a personal contact at a difficult time, an invitation to participate in a group activity, or an offer to help with a challenging situation. Single parents, new converts, less active members, widows and widowers, or struggling youth may need extra attention and priority help from ministering brothers and sisters. Coordination between Elders Quorum and Relief Society presences allows for just the right assignments to be made. After all is said and done, true ministering is accomplished one by one with love as the motivation. The value and merit and wonder of sincere ministering is that it truly changes lives. When our hearts are open and willing to love and include, encourage and comfort, the power of our ministering will be irresistible. With love as the motivation, miracles will happen, and we will find ways to bring our missing sisters and brothers into the all-inclusive embrace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Savior is our example in everything, not only in what we should do, but why we should do it. His life on earth was an invitation to us to raise our sights a little higher, to forget our own problems, and to reach out to others. As we accept the opportunity to wholeheartedly minister to our sisters and brothers, we are blessed to become more spiritually refined more in tune with the will of God, and more able to understand His plan to help each one return to Him. We will more readily recognize His blessings and be eager to extend those blessings to others. 
our hearts will sing in unison with our voices, Savior, may I love my brother as I know thou lovest me. Find in thee my strength, my beacon. For thy servant I would be. Savior, may I love my brother. Lord, I would follow thee. May we show our gratitude and love for God by ministering with love to our eternal sisters and brothers. The result will be a unity of feelings such as the people in ancient America enjoyed 100 years after the Savior's appearance in their land. And it came to pass that there was no contention because of the love of God which should dwell in the hearts of the people. There were no envyings nor strifes, and surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. I gladly bear my personal witness that these revelatory changes are inspired of God, and that as we embrace them with willing hearts, we will become better prepared to meet His Son, Jesus Christ, at His coming. We will be closer to becoming a Zion people, and we will feel surpassing joy with those whom we have helped along the path of discipleship. That we do so is my fervent and humble prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The congregation will now join the choir in singing Redeemer of Israel. After the singing, we will be pleased to hear from Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by Bishop Gerald Cosset, presiding bishop of the Church. Elder Quinton L. Cook of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles will then address us. Following Elder Cook's remarks, the choir will sing, Love One Another. This is the 188th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. KSL-FM Midvale, KSL-Salt Lake City.
The Redeemer of Israel is indeed our only delight. My beloved brothers and sisters, dear friends, I am grateful to be with you on this wonderful General Conference weekend. Harriet and I rejoice with you in sustaining Elders Gong and Soros and the many who have received significant new callings during this General Conference. Although I miss my dear friend, President Thomas S. Monson, I love, sustain, and support our Prophet and President, Russell M. Nelson, and his noble counselors. I'm also thankful and honored to once again work more closely with my beloved fellow brethren of the Quorum of the Twelve. Most of all, I'm deeply humbled and very happy to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where millions of men, women, and children are willing to lift where they stand in whatever capacity or calling and strive with all their heart to serve God and His children, building the Kingdom of God. Today is a sacred day. It is Easter Sunday when we commemorate that glorious morning when our Savior broke the bands of death and emerged triumphant from the tomb. Recently, I asked the Internet, what, <laughs> what day most changed the course of history? The responses range from surprising and strange, as you can expect, to insightful and thought-provoking. Among them, the day when a prehistoric asteroid struck the Yucatan Peninsula, or when in 1440, Johannes Gutenberg finished his printing press. And of course, the day in 1903, when the Wright brothers showed the world that man really can fly. If the same question were asked to you, what would you say? In my mind, the answer is clear. To find the most important day in history, we must go back to that evening almost 2,000 years ago in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus Christ knelt in intense prayer and offered himself as a ransom for our sins. It was during this great and infinite sacrifice of unparalleled suffering in both body and spirit that Jesus Christ, even God, bled at every pore. Out of perfect love, He gave all that we might receive all. His supernal sacrifice, difficult to comprehend, only to be felt with all our heart and mind, reminds us of the universal debt of gratitude we owe Christ for His divine gift. Later that night, Jesus was brought before religious and political authorities who mocked Him, beat Him, and sentenced Him to a shameful death. He hung in agony upon the cross until finally it was finished. His lifeless body was laid in a borrowed tomb. 
And then, on the morning of the third day, Jesus Christ, the Son of Almighty God, emerged from the tomb as a glorious, resurrected being of splendor, light, and majesty. Yes, there are many events throughout history that have profoundly affected the destiny of nations and peoples, but combine them all, and they cannot begin to compare to the importance of what happened on that first Easter morning. What is it? that makes the infinite sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ the most important event in history, more influential than world wars, cataclysmic disasters, and life-changing scientific discoveries. The answer lies in two great unsurmountable challenges that every one of us faces. First, we all die, no matter how young, beautiful, healthy, or cautious you are, someday your body will become lifeless. Friends and family will mourn you, but they cannot bring you back. Nevertheless, because of Jesus Christ, your death will be temporary. Your spirit one day will reunite with your body. This resurrected body will not be subject to death, and you will live in the eternities, free from pain and physical suffering. This will happen because of Jesus the Christ, who laid down his life and took it up again. He did this for all who believe in him. He did this for all who do not believe in him. He did this even for those who mock, revile, and curse his name. Second, we have all sinned. Our sins would forever keep us from living with God because no unclean thing can enter into his kingdom. As a result, every man, woman, and child was shut out of his presence. That is, until Jesus Christ, the Lamb without spot, offered his life as a ransom for our sins. Because Jesus owed no debt to justice, he could pay our debt and meet the demands of justice for every soul. And that includes you and me. Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins, all of them. On that most important day in history, Jesus the Christ opened the gates of death and cast aside the barriers that prevented us from passing into the holy and hallowed halls of everlasting life. Because of our Lord and Savior, you and I, are granted a most precious and priceless gift. Regardless of our past, we can repent and follow the path that leads to celestial light and glory, surrounded by the faithful children of Heavenly Father. 
This is what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. We celebrate life. Because of Jesus Christ, we will rise from the despair of death and embrace those we love, shedding tears of overwhelming joy and overflowing gratitude. Because of Jesus Christ, we will exist as eternal beings, worlds without end. Because of Jesus Christ, our sins cannot only be erased, they can be forgotten. We can become purified and exalted, holy. Because of our beloved Savior, we can forever drink from the fountain of water that springs up into eternal life. We can dwell forever in the mansions of our eternal King, in unimaginable glory and in perfect happiness. In spite of all of this, there are many in the world today who are either not aware of or do not believe in the precious gift Jesus Christ has given us. They may have heard of Jesus Christ and know of him as a historical figure, but they do not see him for who he truly is. When I think of this, I am reminded of this Savior standing before the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate, just a few hours before the Savior's death. Pilate viewed Jesus from a strictly worldly perspective. Pilate had a job to do, and it involved two major tasks, collecting taxes for Rome and keeping the peace. Now, the Jewish Sanhedrin had brought before him a man who they claimed was an obstacle to both. After interrogating his prisoner, Pilate announced, I find in him no fault at all. But he felt he had to appease Jesus' accusers, so Pilate called upon a local custom that allowed one prisoner to be released during Passover season. Would they not have him release Jesus instead of the notorious robber and murderer Barabbas? But the tumultuous mob demanded that Pilate release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Why? Pilate asked. What evil has he done? But they only shouted the louder, crucify him. In one final effort to satisfy the mob, Pilate ordered his men to scourge Jesus. This they did leaving him bloodied and bruised. They mocked him, placed him a crown of thorns on his head, and clothed him in a purple robe. Perhaps Pilate thought this would satisfy the mob's lust for blood. Perhaps they would take pity on the man. Behold, I bring him forth to you, Pilate said, that ye may know that I find no fault in him, Behold the man. The Son of God, 
stood in the flesh before the people of Jerusalem. They could see Jesus, but they did not truly behold him. They did not have eyes to see. In a figurative sense, we too are invited to behold the man. Opinions about him vary in the world. Ancient and modern prophets testify that he is the Son of God. I do this too. It is significant and important that we each come to know for ourselves. So when you ponder the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, what do you see? Those who find a way to truly behold the man find the doorway to life's greatest joys and the balm to life's most demanding despairs. So when you are encompassed by sorrows and grief, behold the man. When you feel lost or forgotten, behold the man. When you are despairing, deserted, doubting, damaged, or defeated, behold the man. He will comfort you. He will heal you and give meaning to your journey. He will pour out his spirit and fill your heart with exceeding joy. He gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. When we truly behold the man, we learn of him and seek to align our lives with him. We repent and strive to refine our natures and daily grow a little closer to him. We trust him. We show our love for him by keeping his commandments and by living up to our sacred covenants. In other words, we become his disciples. His refining light saturates our souls. His grace uplifts us. Our burdens are lightened. Our peace deepened. When we truly Behold the man. We have the promise of a blessed future that inspires and upholds us through the bends and bumps in life's journey. Looking back, we will recognize that there is a divine pattern that the dots really connect. As you accept his sacrifice, become his disciple, and finally reach the end of your earthly journey, what will become of the sorrows you have endured in this life? They will be gone. The disappointments, betrayals, persecutions you have faced, gone. The suffering, heartache, guilt, shame, and anguish you have passed through, gone, forgotten. Is it any wonder that we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, that our children may know to what source they may look for remission of their sins. 
Is it any wonder that we strive with all our hearts to truly behold the man? My beloved brothers and sisters, I testify that the most important day in the history of mankind was the day when Jesus Christ, the living Son of God, won the victory over death and sin for all of God's children. And the most important day in your life and mine is the day when we learn to behold the man, when we see him for who he truly is, when we partake with all our heart and mind of his atoning power, when with renewed enthusiasm and strength we commit to follow him. May that be a day that recurs over and over and over again throughout our lives. I leave you my testimony and blessing that as we behold the man, we will find meaning, joy, and peace in this earthly life and eternal life in the world to come. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. While preparing for the construction of the magnificent Paris France Temple, I had an experience I will never forget. In 2010, when property was for the temple was found, the city mayor asked to meet with us to know more about our church. This meeting was a critical step in obtaining a building permit. We meticulously prepared a presentation that included several impressive pictures of Latter-day Saint temples. My most fervent hope was that their architectural beauty would persuade the mayor to support our project. To my surprise, the mayor indicated that rather than reviewing our presentation, he and his team preferred to conduct their own investigation to find out what kind of church we were. The following months, we were invited back to hear a report given by a city councillor who also happened to be a professor of religious history. She said, Above all else, we wanted to understand who the members of your church are. First, we attended one of your sacrament meetings. We sat at the back of the chapel and carefully observed the people in the congregation and what they were doing. Then we met with your neighbors, those who live around your stake center, and we asked them what kind of people you Mormons are. So, what are your conclusions, I ask, feeling a little bit of anxiety. <laughs> she replied, we discovered that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the closest to Jesus Christ's original church than any other church we know of. I almost objected by saying, that's not completely accurate. It's not the church that is closest, it is the Church of Jesus Christ. The same church, the true church. But I restrained myself and instead offered a silent prayer of gratitude. The mayor then advised us that based on their findings, he and his team had no objections to the construction of a temple in their community. 
Today, when I think about that miraculous experience, I feel grateful for the mayor's wisdom and spirit of discernment. He knew that the key to understanding the church is not to see it through the outward appearance of its buildings or even as a well-organized institution, but through its millions of faithful members who strive each day to follow the example of Jesus Christ. The definition of the church might be derived from a passage in the Book of Mormon that states, And they, meaning the lost disciples, who were baptized in the name of Jesus, were called the Church of Christ. In other words, the Church is all about people. It is all about you, the Lord's disciples, those who love and follow Him, and who have taken His name upon them by covenant. President Russell M. Nelson once likened the Church to a nice automobile. We all love it when our vehicle is clean and shiny. But the car's purpose is not to stand out as an attractive machine. It is to move the people in the car. In the same manner, we as members of the Church appreciate having beautiful places of worship that are clean and well-maintained. And we also enjoy having well-functioning programs. But these are merely support systems. Our sole aim is to invite each son and daughter of God to come unto Christ and to guide him or her along the covenant path. Nothing is more important. Our work is all about people and covenants. Isn't it wonderful that the name given by Revelation to the restored church binds together the two most important elements in each gospel covenant? First is the name Jesus Christ. This church belongs to him. And his sanctifying atonement and covenants are the only pathway to salvation and exaltation. The second name refers to us, the saints, or in other words, his witnesses and his disciples. I learned the importance of focusing on people when I served as a stake president in France. At the beginning of my service, I had in mind some very ambitious goals for the stake. The creation of new wards the building of new meeting houses, and even the construction of a temple in our area. When I was released six years later, not one of these objectives had been achieved. This could have felt like a complete failure, except that during the course of those six years, my objectives had become quite different. As I sat on the stand on the day of my release, I was overwhelmed by a profound sense of gratitude and accomplishment. I looked at the faces of the hundreds of members in attendance. I could recall a spiritual experience connected with each one of them. There were those brothers and sisters who had entered the waters of baptism, those for whom I had signed their first recommends so they could receive the sacred ordinances of the temple, and those young people and couples I had set apart or released as full-time missionaries. There were many others to whom I had ministered as they were going through trials and adversity in their lives. I felt intense brotherly love for each of them. I had found pure joy in serving them and rejoiced in their increased loyalty and faith to the Savior. 
President M. Russell Ballard taught, quote, what is most important in our church responsibilities is not the statistics that are reported or the meetings that are held, but whether or not individual people minister to one at a time just as the Savior did, have been lifted and encouraged and ultimately changed. Close quote. My dear brothers and sisters, are we active in the gospel or are we merely busy in the church? The key is to follow the example of the Savior in all things. If we do that, we will naturally focus on saving individuals rather than performing tasks and implementing programs. Have you ever asked yourself what it would be like if the Savior visited your ward or branch next Sunday? What would he do? Would he be worried to know if the visual aids were good enough or if the chairs were positioned properly in the classroom? Or would he find someone he could love, teach, and bless? Perhaps he would seek out a new member or a friend to welcome, a sick brother or sister in need of comfort, or a wavering young person who needed to be lifted and encouraged. What classes would Jesus visit? I wouldn't be surprised if he visited the primary children first. He would probably kneel down and speak to them eye to eye. He would express his love to them, tell them stories, congratulate them on their drawings, and testify of his Father in heaven. His attitude would be simple, genuine, and without affectation. Can we do likewise? I promise you that as you strive to be on the Lord's agenda, nothing will become more important than finding those people you can help and bless. At church, you will focus on teaching individuals and touching their hearts. Your concern will be to foster a spiritual experience rather than organize a perfect activity, to minister to your fellow members rather than checking a box for the number of visits you've made. It will not be about you, but about them, whom we call our brothers and our sisters. Sometimes we talk about going to church, but the church is more than a building or a particular place. It is just as real and alive in the humblest of dwellings in the most remote areas of the world as it is here at church headquarters in Salt Lake City. The Lord himself said, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. We take the church with us wherever we go, to work, to school, on vacation, and especially in our homes. Our very presence and influence can can be enough to make wherever we find ourselves a holy place. I remember a conversation I had with a friend who is not a member of our faith. He was surprised to learn that any worthy man in our church could receive the priesthood. He asked, but how many priesthood holders do you have in your ward? I answered, between 30 and 40. Perplexed, he continued, in my congregation we only have one priest. Why do you need so many priests on Sunday morning? Intrigued by his question, I felt inspired to reply, I agree with you, 
I don't think we need that many priesthood holders at church on Sunday. But we do need a priesthood holder in every home. And when there is no priesthood in the home, other priesthood holders are called upon to watch over and minister to that family. Ours is not just a Sunday church. Our worship continues each day of the week, wherever we are and in whatever we do. Our homes, in particular, are the primary sanctuaries of our faith. It is most often in our homes that we pray, that we bless, we study, we teach the Word of God, and we serve with pure love. I can testify from personal experience that our homes are sacred places where the Spirit can abound as much as, and sometimes even more, than in our formal places of worship. I bear witness that this Church is the Church of Jesus Christ. Its strength and vitality come from the daily actions of millions of His disciples who strive each day to follow His supreme example by caring for others. Christ lives, and He directs this Church. President Russell M. Nelson is the prophet whom He has chosen to lead and guide us in our days. Of these things I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Eliza R. Snow, speaking of the Kirtland Temple dedication, which she attended, said, The ceremonies of that dedication may be rehearsed, but no mortal language can describe the heavenly manifestations of that memorable day. Angels appeared to some, while a sense of divine presence was realized by all present and each heart was filled with joy inexpressible and full of glory." End quote. The divine manifestations that occurred in the Kirtland Temple were foundational to the purpose of the restored Church of Jesus Christ to bring to pass the salvation and exaltation of our Heavenly Father's children. As we prepare to meet God, we can know what our divinely appointed responsibilities are by reviewing the sacred keys restored in the Kirtland Temple. In the dedicatory prayer, the Prophet Joseph Smith humbly petitioned the Lord to accept of this house which Thou didst command us to build. One week later, on Easter Sunday, the Lord appeared in a magnificent vision and accepted His temple. This occurred on April 3, 1836, almost exactly 182 years ago from this Easter Sunday. It was also the Passover season, one of those rare times when Easter and Passover overlap. After the vision closed, three ancient prophets, Moses, Elias, and Elijah, appeared and committed keys which were essential to accomplish the Lord's purpose for His restored Church in this dispensation. That purpose has been simply but eloquently defined as gathering Israel, sealing them as families, and preparing the world for the Lord's second coming. For both Elijah and Moses to appear was a striking parallel with Jewish tradition, according to which Moses and Elijah would arrive together at the, quote, end of time, 
In our doctrine, this appearance accomplished the foundational restoration of certain keys given for the last days and for the last time, in the which is the dispensation of the fullness of times. The Kirtland Temple, both in location and size, was relatively obscure, but in terms of its enormous significance to mankind, it was eternity-shaping. Ancient prophets restored priesthood keys for the eternal saving ordinances of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This resulted in overwhelming joy for faithful members. These keys provide the power from on high for divinely appointed responsibilities that constitute the primary purpose of the Church. On that wonderful Easter day in the Kirtland Temple, three keys were restored. First, Moses appeared and committed the keys of the gathering of Israel from the four parts of the earth, which is missionary work. Second, Elias appeared and committed the keys of the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham, which includes the restoration of the Abrahamic covenant. President Russell M. Nelson has taught that the purpose of the covenant keys is to prepare members for the kingdom of God. He said, We know who we are and we know what God expects of us. Third, Elijah appeared and committed the keys of the sealing power in this dispensation, which is family history work and temple ordinances, enabling salvation for the living and the dead. There are, under the direction of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve, three executive councils at Church headquarters that oversee these divinely appointed responsibilities based on the keys that were restored in the Kirtland Temple. They are the Missionary Executive Council, the Priesthood and Family Executive Council, and the Temple and Family History Executive Council. Where do we stand today in fulfilling these divinely appointed responsibilities? First, with respect to Moses' restoration of the keys for the gathering of Israel, today almost 70,000 missionaries are spread across the earth preaching His gospel to gather His elect. This is the commencement of the fulfillment of the great and marvelous work Nephi foresaw among both the Gentiles and the House of Israel. Nephi saw our time when the saints of God would be upon all the face of the earth, but their numbers would be small because of wickedness. However, he foresaw that they would be armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. When viewed across the brief history of the restored Church, the missionary effort has been most remarkable. We are seeing the fulfillment of Nephi's vision. Though our numbers are relatively few, we will continue our effort and outreach to those who will respond to the Savior's message. Second, Elias appeared and committed the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham, declaring that in us and our seed all generations after us should be blessed. In this conference, significant guidance has been presented to assist in perfecting the saints and preparing them for the kingdom of God. The announcement in the priesthood session with respect to elders and high priest quorums will unleash priesthood power and authority. Home and visiting teaching, now ministering, as taught so eloquently in this session, will prepare Latter-day Saints to meet God. Third, Elijah committed the sealing keys of this dispensation, 
For those of us alive at this time, the increase in temples and family history work is phenomenal. The pace will continue and accelerate until the second coming of the Savior, lest the whole earth be utterly wasted at His coming. Family history work, heaven blessed by technology, has dramatically increased in the past few years. We would be unwise to become complacent about this divinely appointed responsibility and expect that Aunt Jane or some other committed relative will take care of it. Let me share President Joseph Fielding Smith's jarring comments. None is exempt from this great obligation. It is required of the apostle as well as the humblest elder or sister. Place or distinction or long service in the Church will not entitle one to disregard the salvation of one's dead. We now have temples across the world and the resources of the Patron Assistance Fund to help those in need who are far from a temple. As individuals, we would do well to evaluate our effort in pursuing missionary, temple and family history work, and preparing to meet God. Righteousness, unity, and equality before the Lord undergird these sacred responsibilities. With respect to righteousness, this life is the time for all of us to prepare to meet God. The Book of Mormon provides multiple examples of the tragic consequences when individuals or groups fail to keep the commandments of God. During my lifetime, worldly issues and concerns have moved from one extreme to another, from frivolous and trivial pursuits to serious immorality. It is commendable that non-consensual immorality has been exposed and denounced. Such non-consensual immorality is against the laws of God and of society. Those who understand God's plan should also oppose consensual immorality, which is also a sin. The Family Proclamation to the World warns that individuals who violate covenants of chastity, who abuse spouse or offspring, or for that matter anyone else, will one day stand accountable before God. As we look around, we see the devastation of wickedness and addiction at every turn. If, as individuals, we are really concerned about the ultimate judgment of our Savior, we should seek repentance. I am afraid many people no longer feel accountable to God and do not turn to the scriptures or the prophets for guidance. If we as a society would contemplate the consequences of sin, there would be massive public opposition to pornography and the objectification of women. As Alma told his son Coriantin in the Book of Mormon, wickedness never was happiness. In regards to unity, the Savior declared, If you are not one, you are not mine. We know that the spirit of contention is of the devil. In our day, the scriptural imperative for unity is largely ignored. And for many people, the emphasis is on tribalism, often based on status, gender, race, and wealth. In many countries, if not most, people are deeply divided about how to live. In the Lord's Church, the only culture we adhere to and teach is the culture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The unity we seek is to be unified with the Savior and His teachings. As we look at the primary purposes of the Church, they are based on equality before the Lord and following the culture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
With respect to missionary work, the principal qualifications for baptism are humbling oneself before God and coming forth with a broken heart and contrite spirit. Education, wealth, race, or national origin are not even considered. In addition, missionaries humbly serve where called. They do not attempt to serve based on worldly standards of status or preparation for future careers. They serve with all their heart, might, mind, and strength wherever they are assigned. They do not choose their missionary companions, and they seek diligently to develop Christ-like attributes, which is at the heart of the culture of Jesus Christ. The scriptures give guidance for our most important relationships. The Savior taught that the first commandment was to love the Lord thy God, and the second is to love thy neighbor as thyself. The Savior subsequently explained that everyone is our neighbor. The Book of Mormon makes it clear that there must be no ites, tribes, or classes. We must be united and equal before God. Sacred ordinances and divine responsibilities are built upon this premise. I would expect that your own experiences in the temple would be similar to mine. When I would leave my workaday world in San Francisco and arrive at the Oakland Temple, I would experience an overwhelming feeling of love and peace. A major part of that was sensing I was closer to God and His purposes. The saving ordinances were my primary focus, but a significant part of those beautiful feelings was the equality and unity that permeate the temple. Everyone is dressed in white clothing. There is no evidence of wealth, rank, or educational attainment. We are all brothers and sisters humbling ourselves before God. In the sacred ceiling room, the eternal marriage ordinances, is the same for everyone. I love the fact that the couple from the humblest background and the couple from the wealthiest background have exactly the same experience. They wear the same type of robes and make the same covenants across the same altar. They also receive the same eternal priesthood blessings. This is accomplished in a beautiful temple built by the tithes of the saints as the sacred house of the Lord. Fulfilling divinely appointed responsibilities based on righteousness, unity, and equality before the Lord brings personal happiness and peace in this world and prepares us for eternal life in the world to come. It prepares us to meet God. We pray that each of you, regardless of your current circumstances, will counsel with your bishop and be worthy of a temple recommend. We are grateful that many more members are preparing to go to the temple. There has been a significant increase in the number of worthy adult temple recommend holders for many years. Limited use recommends for worthy youth, youth have increased dramatically over the last two years. Clearly, the faithful core membership of the Church has never been stronger. In conclusion, please be assured that senior Church leaders who provide, preside over the divinely appointed purposes of the Church receive divine assistance. This guidance comes from the Spirit and sometimes directly from the Savior. Both kinds of spiritual guidance are given. I am grateful to have received such assistance. But guidance is given in the Lord's time, line upon line and precept upon precept, when an omniscient Lord deliberately chooses to school us. Guidance for the whole Church comes only to His prophet. 
We have all had the privilege of sustaining President Russell M. Nelson as our prophet and president of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in this conference. The Twelve as a group and individually had a significant spiritual experience when we laid our hands on President Nelson's head and President Dallin H. Oaks, acting as voice, ordained him and set him apart as president of the Church. I testified that he was foreordained and has been prepared his entire life to be the Lord's prophet for our day. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. At the conclusion of the conference, we express sincere appreciation to all who have worked so diligently to prepare for these services. 
We thank those who have spoken and those who have provided the uplifting music. The concluding speaker for this session will be our beloved prophet, President Russell M. Nelson. Following his remarks, the choir will close this conference by singing, Let Us All Press On. The benediction will then be offered by Valerie F. Cordon of the Seventy, and the conference will be adjourned. My beloved brothers and sisters, as we come to the close of this historic conference, I join with you in thanking the Lord for his direction and inspiring influence. The music has been beautiful and uplifting. Not only have the messages been edifying, but they have been life-changing. In solemn assembly, we sustained a new First Presidency. Two great men have been placed in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Eight new general authorities have been called. Now a favorite hymn summarizes our renewed resolve, our challenge, and our charge going forward. Let us all press on in the work of the Lord, that when life is o'er we may gain a reward. In the fight for right, let us wield a sword, the mighty sword of truth. Fear not, though the enemy deride courage. For the Lord is on our side. We will not heed what the wicked may say, but the Lord alone we will obey. I exhort you to study the messages of this conference frequently, even repeatedly, during the next six months. Conscientiously look for ways to incorporate these messages in your family home evenings your gospel teaching, your conversations with family and friends, and even your discussions with those not of our faith. Many good people will respond to the truths taught in this conference when offered in love, and your desire to obey will be enhanced as you remember and reflect upon what you have felt these past two days. This general conference marks the beginning of a new era of ministering. The Lord has made important adjustments in the way we care for each other. Sisters and brothers, old and young, will serve one another in a new, holier way. Elders' quorums will be strengthened to bless the lives of men, women, and children throughout the world. Relief Society sisters will continue to minister in their unique and loving way, extending opportunities to younger sisters to join them as appropriately assigned. Our message to the world is simple and sincere. We invite all of God's children on both sides of the veil to come unto their Savior Receive the blessings of the Holy Temple. Have enduring joy and qualify for eternal life. Eventual exaltation requires our complete fidelity now to covenants we make and ordinances we receive in the house of the Lord. At this time, we have 159 functioning temples, and more are under construction. 
We want to bring temples closer to the expanding membership of the Church. So we are now pleased to announce plans to construct seven more temples. Those temples will be located in the following locations. Salta, Argentina. Bengaluru, India. Managua, Nicaragua. Cagayan de Oro, Philippines. Layton, Utah. Richmond, Virginia. And a major city yet to be determined in Russia. My dear brothers and sisters, construction of these temples may not change your life, but your time in the temple surely will. In that spirit, I bless you to identify those things you can set aside so you can spend more time in the temple. I bless you with greater harmony and love in your homes and a deeper desire to care for your eternal family relationships. I bless you with increased faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and a greater ability to follow him as his true disciples. I bless you to raise your voice in testimony, as I do now, that we are engaged in the work of Almighty God. Jesus is the Christ. This is his Church, which he directs through his anointed servants. I so testify with my expression of love for each of you. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen.
our dear Heavenly Father, in this special Easter Sunday, we thank Thee for the gift of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, for Thy love, and for the blessings to have modern prophets on these days. We ask Thee today for Thy grace to have Christ-like attributes to minister in the Savior's way. We ask to have the courage to follow our prophets, to set aside time to go to the temple and be more like Thy Son. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a broadcast of the 188th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Speakers were selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music was provided by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. This broadcast has been furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited.